This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blibbered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tom McAllicker where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't Fret About Debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. Managed to get a drink. Um, right, we'll just pick up where we left off. So you've just met Osama bin Laden. You're heavily ingrained now in the fabric of Al Qaeda. You're very clear in what you want to do, and now comes the kind of turning point. I suppose the precursor to defecting to the West to join the other side. Really want to find out what that was like. You wrestling with that in your own mind? How that's even possible? But I suppose we'll start with one of the turning points. In 1998, two U.S. embassies are bombed, killing 200 innocent Africans and only managing to kill, I say only, every life is precious, but 12 American diplomats. It's a, it's a really it's sort of uneven scale. And it's at that point you kind of start to question things, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I just decided to finally, officially, I mean, uh, join uh, the organization just about a year earlier in September of 97. And, you know, if, for me at the time, I thought, because, because what was sold to me that we are going to drive away the Americans and the American influence out of the Middle East altogether and that the fight is going to be against the military, Remember, I joined Al-Qaeda when no one heard of them, actually. Like, they, were, they didn't even carry out any attack yet. I mean, you know, so we, we are talking about a project that is in its infancy. And so when I joined them, I remember that when, um, you know, when, when, I, when I met Osama bin Laden to give him the, uh, you know, the oath of allegiance and at the same time to understand where am I going to sit in this uh, organization so... You know, and I remember at the time I was only 19. So he said that you don't look like a commandos, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, you don't look the build for it or whatever. But however, I've heard, you know, good things and I know where I'm going to, you know, uh, send you. And he sent me to a, a specialist camp, um, you know, in one of the valleys in Afghanistan near Jalalabad called uh, Darunta. And that camp was specializing in bomb-making, chemical weapons and biological weapons. And so he said, you know, your talents will be more suited there. Um, and I remember that when I went there, it was one of the most surreal moments. I remember I arrived there and I found the camp to be pretty small. I mean, basically, like, and I mean, if, if you take this hallway, divide it into four room, uh, you know, four buildings. You know, these, this is the camp, just four small buildings um, on a hillside. 
uh, and that's it. And I remember when I arrived, um, and you know, you know, for the start of a new course, and this course will take about eight, you know, eight to nine months. Um, I remember I saw that there were only three other people beside me, like, so we are only four students. And you know, when I sat down with the instructor, and the instructor was a legendary bomb maker, well known, you know, among, you know, the security and intelligence, you know, community, like, and they know who he is. So when I sat down in front of him, and there were only four of us studying with him, and that's it, you know, the whole camp, only five of us. So the, the question, you know, before I even asked the question, he said, I will let you now know why there are only four of you. You know, it's to make sure that to minimize the uh, chances of mistakes. Because in, you know, in the field of, you know, bomb making, the first mistake is the last mistake. That's it. You will not live to make another mistake. You know, and therefore, you know, having only four of you limit the uh, chances of a mistake and also make sure you know, that I can focus on each and every one of you, you know, when they are you know, uh, learning, in the learning you know, and throughout the learning process. So why it is important that I have to mention this particular course? Because... By the end of it, um, in August of um, 1998, the East Africa bombings happened. So two U.S. embassies, one in Nairobi in Kenya and one in uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, were bombed by Al-Qaeda. This was the first opening you know, shot of the battle between Al-Qaeda and the United States. Um, and... It, it resonated with me, I think, more than many others for reason, because you know, the average Al-Qaeda uh, operative at the time would have been, you know, would have been jubilant you know, at what happened, you know, that we did it. Like, you know, I mean, we just stuck the middle finger in front of America. And so this is exactly like, you know, what, you know, what was needed to be done. And we can tell them we can hit you anywhere, anytime. For me, however, there were two factors that made me question you know, my, my position more than anything else. First of all, I was lured into this organization on the belief that we are going to fight the U.S. military and that I was learning bomb making in order to make IEDs against tanks and against armored vehicles and, you know, to blow up bridges and to blow up, like, I mean, uh, power uh, supplies for, you know, the U.S. military. I mean, we, I, I didn't join, you know, in order to go and kill civilians. And so I remember that, you know, First of all, I thank God for the moral compass that my mother instilled in me when I was young to understand the difference between right and wrong. And also, I thank God for the you know, intense religious education that I had when I was young because it made me question the legality and the authenticity of everything that Al-Qaeda was you know, talking about, justifying what happened. And the fact that I was being trained as a bomb maker made me even question my position more because I was thinking... You know, today it was someone who graduated from the same camp who went to Kenya and put that device together. It was almost 900 kg worth of explosives. And just a few weeks prior, we tested a 1.3 tons, you know, 1,300 kg of explosives. It was a big device. Uh, we tested it in that uh, valley. And so the fear in my mind that, you know, I'm going to be one of the next people who will be dispatched somewhere around the world. And all I was thinking at that time 
is how many people who had nothing to do whatsoever you know, in that conflict between Al-Qaeda and the U.S. died you know, because of how big that device was and how full of shrapnel you know, that device was. And so I, I just was not comfortable at all with it. And this is the beginning. It's doubt, doubt that I was in the wrong place and I am with the wrong people now. It, question that's just popped into my mind there. You're saying that you could have been dispatched. If someone, let's just say you were dispatched to London and you were told you have to <coughs> go in and gather these raw materials from, I would imagine, places like B&Q. You could probably <laughs> do, yeah. like, do stuff like that. If you were doing that, <clears throat> is there a possibility that some alarm will go off and some algorithm, like let's just say B&Q are like, hmm, this guy's buying all this stuff and these are the key components of a bomb? Or is that just, does that not work that way? Um, in the past, no, it doesn't work this way. But, you know, now it works this way uh, because, you know, not only like, you know, because of people like me, but also because the authorities, you know, put two and two together and decided that, like, you know, as, you know, um, technology advances, you know, you can use AI for that particular... Jump, you know, yeah. I'm jumping way, way ahead. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you, so that's something you've been responsible. We can't really say too much, um, you know, from one spy to another. I know how we, <laughs> we need to keep these things kind of hush-hush, but yeah. that's something you've been involved in, isn't it? Creating algorithms that basically help you stay, or help the authorities stay a couple of steps ahead. Sort of. Can't. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you when he's away, right? <laughs> um, you when when the bombs gone off, you've gone to an Al Qaeda leader, haven't you, and, and said, "Help me to understand it. I just want to understand." And he's he's kind of cited like a seven hundred year old fatwa, kind of improperly. Is, is that what happened? Well, you know, you already said it yourself. Like, you know, I'm an annoyingly inquisitive person. I mean, I've been always like this, and so uh, well, I, I said you're an insufferable know-it-all, not an inquisitive. <laughs> Well, you know, they are the same, actually. Being annoyingly inquisitive and know it all is the same. <laughs> so I, I went to the you know so-called mufti of Al Qaeda, you know, the most important religious um, authority there, and I told him, "Look, I'm not doubting anything. I just want my heart to be at peace here. Help me, you know, you know, make sense of what happened and to justify it because." Look, you know, treat me as if I'm a newcomer here. Like, I mean, treat me as if, like, I mean, I'm a child. You know, to you explain something to because, you know, it is important for me more than all the other people here in this camp because I'm actually like now fully trained, you know, bomb maker. Like, I mean, I don't want to go, you know, and be dispatched somewhere, and I always have I will have doubt. So help me here. So he said to me, "What did? What does it bother you? What? What? what which?" aspect that you know bothers you about the whole thing that happened in east africa and i said 12 americans dead but also 224 innocent people from kenya from somalia from uganda from tanzania were killed you know there were many somalis who were getting their visas to go and visit their friends and relatives in you know in the u.s i mean there were many ugandans in doing the same and <clears throat> In fact, like, I mean, about, you know, 90 of those 224 who were killed were Muslims. I mean, they were Somalis. So I, I said, like, I mean, you have to understand that, like, in a way I have misgivings. You know, so he said, you have to understand there is a fatwa, you know, a religious edict, you know, from the um, uh, 13th uh, century, 
um, that justifies targeting the enemy if the enemy is within a civilian you know uh, confines so it's still being inquisitive like and i ask you know where can i find it so he told me yeah well you will find it in the comprehensive works of ibn Taymiyyah. so ibn Taymiyyah is this muslim scholar who lived 700 years ago there is a problem though the comprehensive works of ibn Taymiyyah are 37 volumes <laughs> so where am i going to find it and so it just happened two weeks later i was in al-qaeda's main headquarters in kabul in afghanistan and they have a magnificent library there and so I went to the library, and there it was, you know, the comprehensive works of Ibn Taymiyyah. And luckily, the last two volumes were actually the indices. And so I was, I grabbed the indices, and I was looking for that, looking for that. Finally, it led me to volume 28, you know, looked into it straight away. And what I read there, like, I mean, was, you know, you know, shocking to say the least. Like, it really undermined my faith in the organization and that they are actually doing the right thing. That fatwa, that religious edict, which allows you to kill civilians, you know, if uh, you know, the enemy is shielding behind them, refers to the Mongol invasions of the uh, Muslim Central Asia uh, in the early 1200s. Um, so when the Mongols were invading, you know, places like uh, in a modern day uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and uh, uh, Tajikistan, they had a, uh, a practice, which is they will sack one city, take thousands of civilians from that city as prisoners. And then when they are attacking the next city, they make these prisoners push the siege towers towards the walls of the next city they want to sack. So the Muslim defenders of these cities, they were sending requests from the Muslim scholars asking, are we allowed to kill these people? They are our fellow Muslims. I mean, forced to push the siege towers of the Mongols towards our walls. So the answer was, yes, it's a matter of life and death. They are dead already. I mean, they are taken by the Mongols as prisoners. They are dead. Just save yourselves. Now, um, Looking at that and how it was used to justify what happened in East Africa and how Al-Qaeda used it this way, you know, alarmed me to the point where I thought, like, you know, that's it. You know, um, you know I, I think, you know, I've reached the point where I can't follow them anymore. You know, I went to Bosnia because I felt that civilians were killed in mass, num in, in, in big numbers and mass numbers. And... You know, and I don't want to end up, you know, repeating that myself. I'm, you know, you know, they say like, you know, what, like, you know, I mean, you long die a hero or long live or, or long live long enough. enough to become the villain or yeah. something. Yeah. So I thought, no, quit right now. You know, I thought to myself, I would rather quit. And I think it is at that moment that I decided that I don't want to be here anymore. But you see, once you are with them, it's not easy just to say. Thank you guys for everything. You know, it's been a wonderful journey. Bye. Catch you well after yourself for seat Christmas. Yes, because the moment you say, like, you know, I, I'm going to leave. I want to have a normal life. I don't want to live with you anymore. They look at you and they say, but hey, bro, you know everything about us. <laughs> you know where the camps are. You know, like, you know, who the leaders are. You know, our locations. You know, our safe houses. You know, I mean, goodness, like, you know, you know so much. Like, you know, I mean, and 
especially after we've, we've trained you quite well. Like, and I mean, we're not, you know, so what they will do is that they will say, well, we know what is the best, uh, you know, cure for you. Send you to the front line. Hopefully you'll be martyred there. That's it. That is like, you know, basically the cure, you know, for, you know, what they call basically the disease of doubt. That's how they used to call it, mm. the disease of doubt. Um, and so I thought, like, you know, I mean, well, I don't want to show any symptoms. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the best thing to do is just bide my time and find the right pretext, yeah. you know, to leave without raising any alarm. And that right pretext just was around the corner. I mean, I, you know, in the previous December of 97, I was struck with both malaria and typhoid uh, at the same time. And it's Afghanistan. That's what happened. You know, we, we used to say that in Afghanistan, you don't have a passport stamp, but the passport stamp of Afghanistan is malaria. You know, <laughs> if, if you come to Afghanistan and no malaria, actually, you are an illegal immigrant there. So, you know, <laughs> so you must get malaria there. So I, you know, I, so I, I, I was sent to Qatar uh, for uh, medical treatment because I lost half of my weight and my liver was twice the size. And Jesus. so I thought... You know, I'm going to die. I remember actually, like, you know, I mean, when I was in the safe house before I was flying, uh, some of the guys there were, you know, congregating around me and they were looking at me, you know, almost like, you know, I'm in between life and death. And they were saying, um, well, you know, what about your, you know, wonderful jacket? And the other thing, what about your, you know, you have to write your will. The radio that you have, who will you leave it to? <laughs> so I was thinking... Inheriting me while I'm still alive? Yeah. Get away! <laughs> so, so did you have to fly? Can you fly? How did you? Like, I was on a flight back to Ibiza and I was saying nobody's ever felt this bad on a plane, but I think you're like taking the biscuit there. Yeah, well, you have no idea. The, the same Afghan doctor who actually they probably <laughs> looked the same took you know? me <laughs> took me to uh, Afghanistan is the same one who actually flew with me to Qatar, like you now for that treatment. All right. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, within two weeks, I was back to, to normal health, thank God for that. But the hospital in Doha, in Qatar, told me, and actually it, is, it was written in that report, that I must come back, you know, a, a year after to assess if there was any permanent damage to the liver. So I used that as a pretext. I said, well, I need to go back for a checkup, you know. And, you know, I've been dealing with chemicals, you know, all this year. I mean, uh, exposed to so many chemicals during the training. Um, actually, I used to joke that if anyone, you know, who is a health and safety inspector from the UK would end up, like, you know, looking at our camp and how we dealt with chemicals in the most rudimentary and, you know, primitive way, they would have a heart attack. <laughs> so... What, because it was unsafe or because you're making bombs? <laughs> Both. <laughs> I think... Uh, I think... Now, listen, I, I can I... see what you're doing here, but you need to put a lid on that, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think they would have minded, like, making the bombs as much as, like, you know, make it safely! <laughs> so... Wear goggles when you're putting that together. <laughs> so, so we end... Uh, you know, so I ended up actually taking the flight... And I went to Doha, and I remember my, the friend who received me there, you know, when I uh, met him, he said to me, you know, what is your plan? Like, what are you, what you planning to do? Because when I told him, I'm, you know, I'm leaving Al-Qaeda. In fact, when I was on that aircraft leaving from Peshawar Airport to uh, Doha, I was actually renouncing my oath of allegiance, um, you know, to myself. Like, and I just, that's it. Like, and I want to put this, all of this behind me. You know, I don't want to be part of this anymore, and that's it. Like, and I remember, you know, I prayed to God and I said, "Wherever you take me, I will follow." I mean, you know, you brought me here. I have no idea what is in your mind, but wherever you take me, I will follow. So I arrived in um, 
Doha, but you know, I spent the first night in a nice, comfortable home, and I was feeling like, you know, oh, I missed this life. After four years, four bloody years away from home, I missed it so much. You know, you know, be, being between mountains and safe houses and trenches and bunkers and all of that. Like, you know, finally, I'm in a normal home. Um, and, you know, the next day, my friend received a phone call from the uh, intelligence service in Doha telling him to bring your friend to our building. We don't want any scene. Just bring him and uh, uh, we promise you he will be well treated. Um, now, for those of Arab culture, especially Bedouin culture in the Arabian Peninsula, when they give you the promise, well treated, it means well treated. You know, so you believe it straight away. Um, and so I, I was brought by, you know, my friend drove me all the way to uh, the uh, building of the state security headquarters. And there I was received. And as promised, like, you know, from the beginning, like, you know, I mean, you know, uh, handshakes, no handcuffs, you know, and, you know, taken inside the building. And I remember they put me, uh, you know, on a, uh, a chair. And in, a little bit further, there was a big, long table, a Putin-style table. Like, yeah. in the and then behind it, there were nine officers, you know, sitting. And I was thinking, that's so unfair. You know, so I'm outnumbered job. here. <laughs> How many interrogators it take to dismantle an Al-Qaeda terrorist? Exactly. Right. I mean, and the light were like this. Like, you know, there is a light on me, and I can barely see their faces. Um, and so, the, you know, and they said to me, you know, we know who you are. We know who you are associated with. We know everything we need to know about you. So, you know, it will make this evening much easier on you and on us if you are honest with us. I was thinking, okay, you know, no, no worries, I'll be honest with you. Do you deny that you are a member of Al-Qaeda? No, I don't deny it. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Scratching the head. Um, okay. Do you deny that you were trained by so-and-so? No, I don't deny it. Do you deny you're an associate of so-and-so? No, I don't deny it. Okay, then they went through pages ahead, <laughs> like, you know. Do, do you deny that you made a phone call from a phone of a wanted terrorist or whatever in this date and this date and this date? Like, you know, oh, yes, I did. Like, you know, at that time, I was almost dying of malaria and typhoid, you know. And so he gave me the phone, like, you know, to make phone calls and you know, to arrange for this treatment here in your country just a year ago. And then they said, okay, wait a minute here. Like, you know, why are you being so honest with us? Um, and I said, because, you know, yeah, I, I, you know, I was a member of Al-Qaeda. I landed here, you know, leaving that life behind me. Um, and they said, how so? So I told them exactly what I told you now, like, you know, I mean, about the doubts and everything and why I just don't want to be part of it. So they said, okay, well, just give us a few minutes, like, you know. So they all left, and they left me there for a while, and then they came back, switched on the lights proper now, so and I can see all of their faces in them, and they were coming, and one by one, shaking my hand and giving me a warm hug. And they were saying, well done. And they said, you will be our guest here in a well-treated for a few days. We just need a debriefing about a specific case, which was absolutely a specific case. Um, you know, well, I said it like you know, basically in the book, it was the metro uh, bombing of Paris, the, the Paris metro bombing in 1996. Yeah. It turned out the person who actually gave me the phone to make the phone calls were the mastermind of that. Wow. Uh, yeah, so... The briefing came from the French intelligence that this guy is landing, you know, catch him, he's an associate. So, um, so, you know, so they asked me, like, the question is, what are you doing here? I said, well, I want to go back home, you know, to either Saudi Arabia or to Bahrain. I mean, and so, um, 
Then they came back to me the next day and said, well, you are wanted there in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. So, you know, you know, so the authorities there are going to be welcoming as we are. So I said, I want to stay here. And they said, well, no, you can't because at the time, Doha, you know, the capital of Qatar, used to be a city of 250,000 people. It means I will be running into people I know every day. Um, and so they said to me that, look, you know, we have been approached by, you know, three, you know, uh, well-established, uh, I won't say well-regarded, but I would say well-established uh, intelligence agencies <laughs> who are interested in debriefing you and understanding more, you know, about, uh, you know, the organization that you were with. You know, we have the French, DGSE, we have the uh, British MI6, and we have uh, the CIA. So, you know, so all of them are interested. And the question is, like, you know, you have to make up your mind. And I said, do I have to? They said, well, look, you have to be, you, know, you, you have to be, you know, protected by, you know, a, 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 you know, a bigger agency, you know, an agency that actually can look after you. And so, how long do I have to make up my mind? Half an hour. Okay. Uh, so half an hour. <laughs> to decide the rest of your life. Yes, half an hour. You know, so I thought, well, look, like, you know, I hate the, you know, French language and I don't like it at all. Like, you know, basically it is awful and I don't like the people or the man. Sorry for them if you pass Anyway, here, so anyway. <laughs> um, and, yeah. As for the Americans, I mean, just, you know, the past August, I mean, just after, you know, three weeks after, you know, that... Uh, East Africa bombings. I mean, they retaliated against our camps, and you know, I survived a cruise missile attack. Like, I mean, and so I was thinking, it's very difficult to go to switch exactly from people who I was trying to kill and work with people who were trying to kill me too. Like, I mean, it's it's just it's too difficult. Like, and so I. You know when that happens, do you know? <laughs> I know exactly what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, well, I think you know the British will be a. Uh, you know, uh, I would say the best of all evil choices. <laughs> and so I thought, okay. Um, I went uh, back and I said, I think it will be, you know, uh, you know, the UK intelligence services. And so, um, so they said to me, okay, perfect. Like, and I mean, and then within five minutes, they told me, well, your flight is this evening. This evening, like, you know, at least, like, can I say goodbye to some, for some friends here in Doha? Yes, you can. They will come. We will tell them to come to the airport and have a coffee with you and everything. Okay, fine. So. I arrived here in London. Well, I mean, not here, but in London. Close enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> close enough. Um, and I was greeted by, uh, you know, uh, two um, uh, counter-terrorism officials from both MI5 and MI6. Um, and it helped that they, was, they spoke Arabic. And um, um, it was 16 December of uh, 1998. Well, that's some welcome in it. It would have been freezing. You've just come from the Middle East. Like, it must have been a shock to the system in so many ways. I lived in the mountains of Afghanistan. It was even more colder than that, trust me. <laughs> All right, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so um, so I uh, arrived, and I remember that uh, when, when I arrived, one of the officers said that, you know, who would have known that, you know, Santa lives in the mountains of Afghanistan? It's Christmas er coming early, and so... I, you know, I had the initial debriefings with them. They were very satisfied, like, you know, basically of who I am and, you know, why I'm, you know, defecting. Um, and this is how the journey started. The whole thing now is how to create a cover story and how to uh, make the debriefings happen. I was told that we will only, like, you know, I mean, bother you for six months. We will not bother you more than that. 
actually they bothered me for eight years. Uh, you know, talk about like the broken promises. But uh, um, you know, by the end of the six months debriefing, we thought it will last two months. Actually, it turns out to be six months. Uh, after at the end of the debriefings, I was asked the question: You know, would you mind going back to Afghanistan for us? And I remember when they were saying and, you know, because they wanted to give me two weeks, three weeks to think about it. I said, yes, of course. <laughs> um, and I remember they said to me, you know, we, could, we were thinking about giving you enough time to think about it. I said, no, I don't want to think about it. I'm bored to death here. Um, and yeah, I would rather like, you know, be somewhere you know, more useful than actually being here. For the six months that you're away, where did Al-Qaeda think you are? Did they think that you had to go for treatment? For treatment, because... One thing common about the Gulf countries, you know, like Doha and like, like Qatar and Saudi Arabia, is that whenever they encounter something, you know, that is not uh, fixable by themselves, yeah. you know, medically speaking, they send you to London or to uh, yeah. other cities, like you know, or Germany or uh, the U.S. So it so happened that that hospital in Doha had, you know, a, a good arrangement with Cromwell Hospital in uh, Kensington, yeah. okay. uh, in London, and so this is how the cover story was built. And then the Al-Qaeda members who were in the UK, and remember, this is London Abad, you know, the capital of Englistan. So for people who want to, <laughs> to understand, like, you know, how, you know, prolific the presence of Al-Qaeda, many other jihadist groups were there. Um, and so, you know, the fact that I was there getting treatment and the fact that they saw me in the hospital and hooked up to all of these machines and everything convinced them that it was genuine. And so then after that, many of them naturally, on their own, asked me to stay with them a little bit here. And this is how the whole story, like in, in the cover story, right, developed. Okay. What, how, how were the MI6 with you? Because I imagine they're trained professionals and they probably don't take everything at face value, complete face value. Were they a wee bit distrusting of you or did you manage to sort of win them over quickly with just how much that you were giving them? Well, there is something here which is called the facial matrix. I mean, basically, when you build... You know, when you have a wall full of pictures and you are recognizing each and every one, and then you have a wall, you know, with them in Afghanistan, full of, you know, basically, you know, containing the map of Afghanistan, and you're pinpointing the locations of the camps and the safe houses and the uh, routes and, the, you know, and all these locations and the headquarters. And so when you do that, you know, and within two months, I think, of debriefings, you know, more or less, you know, and I was told this in later years, I became one of their most trusted, you know, uh, assets. And I think it is because the amount of damage and exposure I was making was just yeah. too much, you know, basically to believe that it was an implant. So is that basically what a debriefing is, telling them everything that you know and helping to bolster their attack? Remember that when I landed in December of... 1998 at the time and i know it's difficult to believe but you know now but at the time the in both in my five and in my six the efforts towards counter islamic extremism and islamic terrorism was really small you know uh, effort because in my six was focusing on counter uh, nuclear uh, proliferation uh, in the former soviet union uh, you know, uh, former, uh, you know, basically, like, I mean, uh, looking at countering, you know, the rise of China at that time, you know, th they were not exactly concerned that much about Islamic terrorism until actually, you know, the East Africa bombings happened. And within MI5, most of their activities were against the IRA um, and counterintelligence, you know, to 
try to uh, you know to get rid of the you know the remnants of the Russian uh, you know KGB and the Stasi and all of that. So 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 when when, when the East Africa bombings happened and they realized that this is big and some of it was directed from London. I mean you know London was the you know an important city for you know the jihadist extremists at the time. So they scrambled to bolster those counter-terrorism desks within these organizations. And by that time, they have hardly any human assets inside. So for me, just to, you know, to land at that moment, it was more or less might have seen like a divine providence for some of them. Yeah, perfect timing. Did you like life in the UK when you first came over? Because it would have been, you're going through so many changes from one culture to then being in these mountains and trenches and stuff and then you're in the relative comfort of the UK did you never think you know I wouldn't mind just getting the feet up and just getting a wee flat somewhere in London and just relaxing um it it was very weird experience I mean in one hand I am experiencing the you know the extremist part of London like I mean these circles hiding in the shadows but at the same time I was experiencing you know the um, the how can I say the English upper class London through the MI6 and MI5 officers who know, were <laughs> I don't know who's worse out of those two groups to be yeah. honest. So so I was like you know I mean moving between these two and I was thinking you know how could it be like in this dichotomy like in this, this yeah. uh, paradoxical London like and I mean I was you know uh, uh, you know inhabiting but it it was fascinating for me and actually one of the things I really loved more than anything else, is that something that I've never been exposed to before. Some, th- you know, uh, well, three things I was never exposed to before. Museums, libraries, and theaters. I just fell in love with the fact that, wow, there is something here to ad- admire and enjoy. Are you a Mamma Mia fan as well? Or <laughs> no, not... That's my favorite. No, not Mamma Mia. Will you shake your hand for me? It's amazing. <laughs> no. Don't knock it. <laughs> It's fucking brilliant. <laughs> although, although I've seen it in Glasgow, brilliant. Everybody's up singing, seeing London, they're all just sitting there. And I'm like, you're all looking at me as if I'm the weirdo, mate. Abazon, why are we not all up singing? Um, see, we being exposed to like this new culture and you, you, you wouldn't have always lived like a sort of Buddhist monk in, in terms of not having anything. Did you have like a, were you re-exposed to like a healthy dose of materialism because like I've smelled Aventus Creed on you before <laughs> so you have got a nose like a blood thing. haven't I I'm right isn't I? when we went for lunch I was like smells really good <laughs> it was Aventus that's weird man <laughs> what can I say mate I'm Sniffing a weird guy like a... <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, I, mean, I've, I I've don't know what it. my it's wife nice. will do or say about this <laughs> she'll get over it she'll learn to live with it <laughs> But no, did, did, you, did you start to think, you know, not feeling a sense of guilt, like, you know, I can enjoy a nice thing and enjoying those sort of the theatres and the museums and, okay, so it wasn't Mamma Mia. Well of, well, of course I started to feel that, you know, it's not so much for the materialism, it's so much for the norm- normalcy. Yeah. The feeling that it's normal. You know, I don't have, you know, to smell the smell of gunpowder and, you know, the diesel I use in order to clean my gun every day. And, you know, it, 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 it just, it, it's no longer the smell of chemicals, um, you know, and it's not the barren, you know, cold, desolate mountains, but, you know, normal, you know, leafy streets. I mean, it, it started to grow on me. 
But the fact that started growing me made me scared because I'm still, you know, someone who is committed. And I remember when they asked me the question, they said, do you want to go, you know, to Afghanistan to spy for us? You know, like, you know, you're going into somewhere where anything could go wrong and we can't rescue you. If, if, if they capture you, you know, that's it, you're yeah. dead. So do you understand the risk here? And I said, you're talking to someone who spent four years in, in four different war zones? Mm. I mean, of course I know what the risk is. But I said that if I was willing to be fearless and sacrifice my life for the other side, you know, when it is wrong, how come I will be hypocritical and coward, you know, when I'm with the right side of history right now and I don't, you know, make sure that my sense of duty override my sense of fear? Did you see that then as just a, a real opportunity for redemption as well? Because obviously your moral compass has been instilled in you and you're thinking it's the right thing. But is there a wee part of you thinking, I can make amends here for, for what I was, you know, brainwashed or not, what I've done? There is no question about it. That was the right motive. We, uh, oh, before we, we do talk about having to go back, Scotland played a, a really key role. You know, oh, yeah. bringing you up to safe houses and stuff. Why was that so you could, because you said you wanted to be close to mountainous regions that you had grown accustomed to? Yeah, I mean, w one of the things uh, is that during the debriefings, uh, you know, my handlers noticed basically that I was always talking fondly, you know, of the mountains in Bosnia and the Balkan mountains and, of course, the mountains in the Caucasus. And, uh, you know, they told us, sorry, they told me that at that time that, yeah, I think, you know, you will love Scotland. And so most of the bonding, you know, we call it the bonding experience when you are, you know, bonding with your handlers. So your handlers, like, you know, are important, you know, part of your espionage uh, journey, that the relationship between, because, because you are putting your own life in, in your handlers' hands, mm -hmm. I mean, and that's why they call handlers, I mean, so, you know, you are trusting them with your life and that they will do what is right by you. They should not pressure you to do anything that could risk your life. At the same time, they make sure that they push you to your full potential, but without risking your life. And so the bonding is important. So where it happened, it happened in, you know, places all along the A82, you know, for those who know here. Like, you so know. We, people could just be driving past what is essentially an MI6 property and not realize? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? Uh, no, it's not actually. Like, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, you know, isolated, you know, but nonetheless a beautiful scenery, yeah. you know, uh, clean air. It's a place for the mind to think clearly without the hustle and bustle of, you know, a large, you know, city like London. Did you know that, see when, uh, before like tectonic plates were shifting and bits of land started moving across, did they call it Pangaea? Like this big, yeah. the massive supercontinent. Where Scotland is located was formed part of the Andes mountain range. And then well, it's gone all different ways, and that's why it's, it's just by pure chance that this wee snippet was formerly part of that. I was you're, told you're also that the that education there. Yeah, that north of Loch Ness, you know, is actually like in you know, a part of the Canadian plate now, wow. rather than like in you know, I mean the uh, you know south of Loch Ness is actually the European plate. When when you came to Scotland, did you was a wee part of you thinking, oh shit, I need to learn a new language now? Like, could you understand what people were saying? <laughs> Um. <laughs> it's, and you've got all these different dialects and accents and forms of Scots. I did really struggle to understand the word of people, you know, what people say in train stations and everything. <laughs> and the fact that the first train station I uh, arrived to in Scotland was Glasgow was unfortunate. 
Um, because <laughs> yeah, it's sorry like, about that. Um, you know, well, my handler was telling me, like, you know, to meet him at a certain car park, like, you know, just outside there. Like, I mean, excuse me, sir, where is it? Like, you know, and then I, I hear something and I just, ah, ah, okay, thank you. I, 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 I don't know. Like, I'll ask the next person. <laughs> By the way, people from London are struggling, so you can be forgiven for that. So you have to start basically going back into into Afghanistan and to get information. One thing, were you ever like, like, I'm just picturing you sitting in a like an airport lounge, kind of stressed out your head, thinking I need to go back and do this, and somebody moaning saying, oh, I need to go offshore for three weeks. And, like, are you kind of just sitting thinking, I will, you know, I'm about to take my life into my, somebody else's hands. Well, I mean, I'm, you know, that, that is the nature of espionage. I mean, at the end of the day, like, I mean, <laughs> so, when, so when, when you go back, do you basically just start? feeding information back to MI6? Oh, no, that's not how it works. Uh, Afghanistan is a black hole of information at that time. Right. There was no TV, there was no phone lines, no in a, no mobile phones, nothing. Like, I mean, basically, it is a hundred years back in time. So there was a necessity to make sure that there is a strategy for me to be able to uh, convey information back into the UK. So the whole thing revolved around, you know, persuading some senior members of Al-Qaeda that there is money to be made from exporting certain uh, items, you know, of high value from Afghanistan and northern Pakistan into the Arabian Peninsula, into the Gulf countries. And so it was a really, you know, uh, half-thought plan, but it worked. It was a crazy plan, but it worked. You know, in order for them to have, you know, money of their own. And so we identified this weakness from the beginning that some senior leadership, um, you know, some people, you know, in the leadership, in the senior leadership, were not uh, satisfied entirely with the fact that they have six, seven, eight kids and they don't have enough money from Al-Qaeda to support them. And so you go to them and you say, well, you have the connections, you know, in certain parts of the uh, Kashmiri landscape in northern uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, in Nuristan and other places, you know, for the export of honey, of nuts, of uh, pink Himalayan salt, all of these things. You know what, like, I mean, I could help you with this. And that was an eye-opening experience for me because, first of all, these leaders, you know, jumped, you know, head over heel, like, you know, or heel over head, I would say, like, in order to, you know, to sign up for this. And second, it gave me the necessary cover to be able to go and come. But I remember I warned my handlers at the time, it will limit how much information I'm privileged to, because then they will put me in what we call the traveler's bracket. You know, I'm in that, you know, section of Al-Qaeda where I am more exposed to the outside world than people in, and therefore... I will be less, I will have less access to privileged information than others. They said, this is a risk we're willing to take. That's fine. As long as we are able to see you, because there, what's the point of putting you there and then you rise into a leadership position, but you can't even communicate with us, like, yeah. because you can't even leave. Yeah, it's not as if you can just jump on FaceTime and start explaining exactly. something to them. How, so how long that lasted for eight years, you were able to to prevent a lot of stuff going on? I mean, what are some of the, the potential attacks that you managed to thwart that you're in a position to, to divulge information about? Well, 
for the 33 months before 9-11, you know, the uh, focus was a lot on what is happening in Yemen, especially like, in, I mean, after the USS call. So was looking into the cells that were created in order to kidnap foreigners, you know, and especially to attack churches in Aden and other places. So that was the first major breakthrough information that was started to feed. But then, of course, 9-11 happened. Now, for, you know, people who want to understand what happened prior to 9-11 is that the Al-Qaeda as an organization experienced a significant tightening of information. So they started to put, uh, especially in Tarnak, uh, which is the major headquarters for Al-Qaeda in Kandahar, they started putting, uh, you know, papers, you know, signs on the walls saying, you only need to know what you need to know. Don't ask questions, you know. So they started to implement information blackout. That's the first thing. To the point where, which we learned this years later, is that the the executive committee of Al-Qaeda, which is 20 people, including Bin Laden and his deputies, 20 members there, these are the senior leaders, until 48 hours before 9-11, 12 of them were never aware of it. So we're talking about 60% of Al-Qaeda's leadership didn't know that 9-11 is about to happen. So, and when they were told, they were told with the most minimal uh, amount of details, and only four people inside Afghanistan at the time knew the full details of 9-11 before it happened. Only four people. So this is why, you know, the best, you know, we could do at the time is that when I was, um, I remember when I was in Afghanistan last before 9-11 was in June of 2001. And I was summoned to, uh, you know, to see the uh, Osama bin Laden's deputy, Abu Hafs al-Masri. And I remember he told me that um, you are here because I know you are traveling to the UK in a few days and I have a mission for you. And this mission is like this, you know, you have four names and he gave me four names of people uh, who shall remain nameless. <laughs> um, I don't want any trouble anyway. So, <laughs> but me neither. Yeah. So. These four people, as soon as I land in the UK, I have to go to them and tell them one by one that they must sort out their affairs before the end of August and that they must be in Pakistan before the end of August, ready to go into Afghanistan. And you know, at the time, two of them were living in the Midlands and two of them were living in London. So I met the first one in London and I told him this. But of course, I remember when I was leaving... Uh, you know, the presence of Abu Hafs, he told me that something is about to happen and it's going to be big. When it happens, you stay in the UK and you do not come back. So when you leave now, you are never to return to Afghanistan. That's it. Like Once you leave now, don't come back. We want you to stay there. And I asked him, but, you know, what if you know, there is a jihad and I am needed. No, no, no. You stay there. We will contact you when we need you. Because we don't want all our eggs in one basket. Because the Americans are coming here for sure. So if you see the Americans fighting us here, do not be tempted to come back and fight with us here. Stay where you are. Do not, um, you know, leave uh, the UK. So when I gave this information to my handlers at the time, 
their reaction told me that they themselves also knew from other sources that something is happening and, the, and no one knows the nature of it, that there is something approaching and no, one's no, no one know, knows what's going to happen. All what they are knowing is that it's going to target the Americans and that it is big enough to elicit the Americans retaliating so hard and that they are telling some of their people to come to Afghanistan and they are telling other people to stay out of Afghanistan and to remain in place until they are contacted. So that is, you know, the story of, you know, what happened prior to 9-11. Of course, when 9-11 happened, um, and I remember, like, you know, as soon as it happened, I realized that's it. This is the one that uh, I was told about. And... That, you know, at that you know, uh, afternoon my phone rang and I was told you know, to just... I was living outside of London at the time. I said, I'm in London actually this day. Stay there, book a hotel for a week. It's going to be a long week. And you know, for the following uh, week, I was just spending more time in the MOD actually. I mean, just pointing at maps and looking at revising everything you know, from the historical knowledge where they are and where they're going to be and what their defenses and what likely weapons they are going to deploy. Um, but it, it was an intelligence failure on a big scale because of the fact that Al-Qaeda for once you know, was able to impose a you know, disciplined um, level of information blackout. Mm. And one thing, though, I never mentioned it in the book, which is, you know... Um, it's one of the haunting things that stays with you for the rest of your life. And one of the things also that I was trained on in order to gain more intelligence from people, you know, with them volunteering it. Um, as, a, as someone who memorized the Quran, one of the things is that when you learn some psychology and you are taught some of the psychology, especially the psychology of warfare and soldiery, um, you can then... It learn, you know, a, a subtle art of dream interpretation. Why this is important? Because for these people, especially for the jihadists, dreams are something that they experience because, of course, of the heightened sense of impending doom and death always there. You know, you are in danger. And so, therefore, any dream, any vision could be a sign of something is about to happen. And I remember I learned this in order for people to come and tell me their dreams and because what is the thing that they read more than anything every day and every night is the Quran and so the Quran influenced their dreams and therefore I can interpret their dreams based on the Quran and I, and I excelled at that and so they were coming more and more to talk to me about it one day and it was in February of 2000 the year 2000 February a guy who came, who was trying to actually go to Chechnya and he couldn't during the Second War, and so he came to Afghanistan. He came to me and he said that he saw a dream. And I, you know, uh, told him, you came to the right place. I mean, okay, so tell me, like, I mean, what is your dream? He said, well, I saw a dream that I was riding this giant bird. And Along in the distance there, I saw a tower. And I saw a dark tower there at the distance, and I saw myself, you know, goading this bird to go and smash into that tower because I felt that this is my destiny. This is what I'm supposed to do. And 
he smashed into the tower, but the tower didn't fall. And he was suspended in air there looking at it, and he did, the tower didn't fall. And then the dark clouds you know, you know, basically parted, and there was the wing of an angel that, barely visible, came and smashed the tower all the way to the ground. And he said, and, that, and then he awoke. And he felt that this dream is so vivid that he can remember every part of it. So I said to him, well, look, I mean, the Quran is very clear about, you know, this. And so my interpretation for you is that you will die in a faraway land, not here in Afghanistan. Your death will be somewhere very far. And because of a verse from the Quran that says, wherever you are, Death will find you even if you were hiding in high fortified towers. So because you're talking about a tower, and it means that there will be a distance you know, between you here and where you will die. That's all I can tell you. So three days later, he came to me and he said, I want you to swear that you will not tell anyone about the dream that I saw. And I said, I never tell anyone about dreams. I mean, it's just between you and me. And he said, yes, but this one in particular, do not tell anyone about it. Just forget it. Out of your mind. Well, when I saw his name among the 19 hijackers, I was more or less thinking, oh my God. This guy, he just told me about it. So fast forward two years later, I met one of his friends in uh, Arabia and when I was still spying for uh, the UK intelligence services and we were discussing things and he was telling me about one of the dreams and then he said to me, actually, I know for a fact that Abdul Aziz Al-Umari, the leader of the hijackers, came to you and told you the dream and then he went to Abu Hafs al-Masri who is the deputy of Bin Laden and told him the dream. Abu Hafs al-Masri grabbed him from, the, you know, from his uh, collar and he said, did anyone tell you about anything, about any operation, about any planning for something? And he said, no, no, no one told me anything. He said, no, you know, tell me the truth. Did anyone tell you anything? No. So he, Abu Hafs was satisfied that this is an omen. This is a, uh, you know, a, a sign. And so he took him all the way to Osama Bin Laden so Osama bin Laden, who was always like, an, I mean, obsessed with the visions, he said, include him, because this is the way we guarantee that the operation will be a success. Because he saw it happen, and he saw like, an, you know, so therefore, if he is there, it will happen. I know like, you know, it's too much to process, but, you know. It's... I mean, does my face, is it dumbfounded or what? <laughs> like, I'm just honestly trying to stop my jaw for yeah, the, and we never. I remember when I was discussing with my co-author, I said, "Like, you know, shall we put it in the book?" And he said, "It's not something that we put in the book." Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, um, at the end of the day, like, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's not like you know, I'm trying to say that there is a justification or anything. There are always, like, you know, I mean, other interpretations for you know what people see, but sometimes, you know, it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, this guy, you know, heard something might have influenced his dreams, might have, like, you know, therefore reflected in his subconscious, went, you know, to the uh, leadership, told them about what he saw. They thought, like, you know, oh, this is a sign from God, and then they included him. It's all, you know, rather twisted.
No, that is mental. I think you're right not to put it in the book because it could possibly be used against you. People could say maybe you knew and you're just trying to disguise it. I mean, uh, no. Yeah, no clue. <laughs> but, you know, people can 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 uh, make far-reaching sort of claims. Um, I'm I'm conscious of time. I would like to, if anybody would like to to ask some questions, we, we'll certainly open up. But I just have a quick, quick point. I kind of want to touch on um, deradicalization. I think there are four key components to consider. That would be, you know, legal, moral, and logistical. Can you de-radicalize somebody and take those into consideration? And also public safety and interest. And we'll keep this one brief. Do you think it's possible to de-radicalize Islamist extremists when it's not of their own free will? Yes, it is possible, but only through the, the weaponization of doubt. Only when you weaponize doubt and you try to infect their minds with doubt, only then you will be able to reach out to their better nature and then to try to make them turn around yeah. you know, and change their mind. You see, my journey started with doubt. And a disease th- of doubt. A disease of doubt, as they call it, yes. Um, which can only be cured by you know, being martyred. But, <laughs> you know, um, but this is why I'm saying that instead of trying to convince them you know, to be better people, I mean, you have to confuse them first. You have to make them question every aspect of you know, the faith they take at absolutely face value. So you need to make sure that you reach out to those areas in the mind which keep telling them that what they're doing is right, 100%. You need only 1% doubt, only 1%. Because that 1% will grow and grow and grow. And then, you know, instead of a committed, bloodthirsty militant, you will end up with a, you know, disillusioned individual who's just, trying to do the right thing but you know not be will not be willing you know to harm anyone anymore you know for the cause that he believed in once you should do this as a job you really know what you're talking about <laughs> um, life today is so different the i'm sure everybody here has heard it but the conflicted podcast where your co-host thomas small uh, is just phenomenal. I've listened to it like five times now. Oh, thank you. Because it basically, if anyone isn't aware, it'll just explain to you the geopolitical situation that led to 9-11, you know, prior and post and what's going on in every fragment of the world and how it all um, joins up. It's funny, it's entertaining, it's really, really worth listening to. Um, how much do you enjoy that? Like, Did you ever see yourself as being a, a media figure? You were on Newsnight with Kirsty Ward <laughs> the other day. Um it wasn't my intention, um, you know, uh, because by 2006, after eight years of, you know, um, you know, uh, being a spy, uh, you know, I was outed by a leak in the U.S., you know, by the U.S. intelligence, and it was all just like, you know, in a, you know, a comedy of errors, I would say. Um, and after that, of course, I mean, I can't do it anymore because I was exposed, and so. Therefore, I did what you know everyone you know uh, would do. Like I mean, you exchange one form of terrorism to another. I became a banker, and you know, working for the banking sector was one of the best and worst experiences I ever had. I mean, um, you know, but nonetheless, um, you know, it, it wasn't it, it wasn't so much my intention that 
you know, I wanted to become a public figure, but the, you know, and again, it was one of those weird, weird, weird situations. Uh, in 2014, you know, I was invited to one of those military military clubs, you know, in uh, Piccadilly, in London, and uh, to give a um, you know a talk about ISIS and Libya and all of that. And one of the things is that. You know, at that time I was not known publicly. Like, and I was only known within small circles of, uh, you know, within the intelligence community and the uh, military community. So, one former general, one of the heroes of the Falklands uh, conflict, he invited me uh, to give a talk uh, in the Royal Air Force Club in uh, November of 2014. And the idea is that. You know, I will come. He will introduce me. You know, with some, you know, being economic with the truth a little bit, like you know, but at least give the flavor and the idea that all of those people, you know, present are vetted. Like, and we know who they are, that they are, you know, uh, diplomats or former diplomats or MPs or former MPs and politicians and you know all of that. Chatham House rules: no one, like you know, should leak whatever, like you know, being said here. Um, and you know, however, that general was extremely generous in his remarks you know he more or less like you know, basically gave my full biography you know to um, you know to the audience but i was happy that the audience were you know of discerning people military and po political and that, that that you know that it will not leak what we didn't know is that there were senior bbc journalists you know in the <laughs> you know in the audience and, everywhere. and you know two of them and you know, and this is when it became apparent afterwards um, that they were so interested that they started investigating me, and started looking, you know, into my past and started looking at my professional life and all of that. And you know, and I got the warning from my, you know, uh, you know, uh, from the community that, hey, you have to get ahead of this. You know, or you know, uh, they will present a very distorted picture. You know, um, uh, without your input. And I contacted them. I said, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, uh, can you, you know, are, you know, is there anything I can tell you to persuade you not to pursue it? And the answer was, oh no, we are enjoying it actually. <laughs> so okay, um, how about we meet and I put set the record straight? And so this is how. I ended up becoming a public figure in 2015. Yeah. And the podcast, do you see yourself continuing to do that? Because people absolutely love hearing from you and hearing what is an unparalleled and unequivocal level of input. It will please you to know that we are planning season four already. Good. So. <laughs> you actually have the live show. I'm going to be there uh, yeah. in London. A couple of other points to round off on, but sorry for... I just there's no way I was interrupting as you were telling those stories. Fiona's going to be going around with the mic. There we go. We've got a question kind of front center there. Hello. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation, so thanks uh, for all the insight. Um, before it started tonight, I was sitting thinking and I'd sent Sean a message saying I was trying to have a wee look around the room because I thought there would be some intelligence agency people here tonight. I was going to ask you if you could point them out, but I know that the answer to that is going to be no. So my question that I think you might be able to answer is, obviously you've come out of the, the kind of espionage and the spy stuff. I take it they're okay with you talking about some of your experiences. Obviously, there's only some amount of detail you can go into, but what's the kind of general standpoint? Is there other spies as well that would maybe talk about their experiences? Is that a normal thing? 
Well, it all depends on, you know, how comfortable they are talking about it, you know. So, you know, for me, I would, if, if it wasn't for that night in the Royal Air Force Club in 2014, you know, I, I wouldn't be here today. You know, it's just because um, at some point, if you start, you know, entertaining some of these, you know, uh, requests from, you know, former generals and former intelligence officers, like, you know, to come and talk to, you know, a select... Uh, audience, at some point there will be the risk. And funny enough, like, you know, that was only the second time I did it. I mean, so, uh, so unfortunately, it, you know, when it happened, I realized that, you know, the narrative is going to be out there. Either you, you know, you ride along with it, or if, it's, if it comes out, it will have a negative impact because I will have neighbors who will live next to me. And if the picture is not fully, you know, completed, some, you know, the, the story would have come out, you know, HSBC is employing, employing a former member of Al-Qaeda. Questions asked, like, you know, how good is the vetting of HSBC? I mean, <laughs> it, it was going to come out really awful. So unless if I had really intervened and made sure that, okay, put the right story out, because I'm not going to, you know, uh, you know, have the, you know the negative impact of a negative story coming out because someone doesn't know the whole truth. So, would there be other spies willing to talk about this? Of course, like you know, there has been. If you go to the spy museum in the U.S., um, if you go inside, one of the uh, things is that you will see giant screens and some you know, um, you know, uh, record video recordings of spies like in you know, a greeting you. One of them will be me, but there are many others there. You know, who will be greeting you into the museum. And so, you know, and as, as I said to you, like, you know, the reason why I'm comfortable with it is because of, well, you know, a lousy evening in the Royal Air Force Club, you know, about eight years ago. Where's the spy museum? Uh, in DC. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do we have any other questions? Up the very back right there. Uh, so earlier on tonight, the name Shamima Begum came up, and oh, yeah. um, we never kind of got onto it. But it would just be, it's obviously very controversial, but you were quite young when you first set off to Bosnia, age about 15, 16. What is your view on these kids that went out at that age, 15, 16, and are now being heavily persecuted and not being allowed back? You probably have quite a unique take on, is it public security risk here or do we need to give these kids another chance? Well, the, the, the specific case, you know, of Shamima Begum is, you know, troubling in its aspects because, first of all, like, you know, she left, she was 15, and she was really a child, you know, when she left. You know, it's the question of what in later life transpired, you know, throughout her actions when she was with ISIS. Um, it wasn't the fact that she was that meek and weak um, you know, figure within the ISIS female, you know, legions. I mean, she was active member of it, and she was part of a force, you know, that committed atrocities against the Yazidi women who were kidnapped and sold into slavery. So it's just very difficult to compare it with for example, what happened in Bosnia when young people went to fight because, you know, uh, women were being raped. I mean, she was there actually aiding the rape of women. Uh, and that is the troubling aspect of it, is that she joined a dark cult rather than 
you know, uh, going for the right reasons. And even then, she really remained with them all the way until the last square inch they had. So that was also troubling. Um, and then when she was finally discovered in that camp, she wasn't yet um, willing to be remorseful about what happened. You know, uh, you know, she was more casual about it. And I think this is what counted against her. However, I would understand why she was casual about it because she was surrounded by other, you know, ISIS members in the, you know, camp. And she was maybe afraid like that if she spoke her own mind, you know, she would be targeted. The problem is we, would, we wouldn't know the truth, whether she was speaking her mind for real or she was pretending. The... The only indicators that we could have that she was really remorseful if she was in touch with her family and gave her family the full authority to contact the UK security services and to say that she is willing to basically, like in a missing, like a canary, and to tell everything that happened, who recruited her, who paid for her ticket, you know, who she met, what was her route, and all of these things. That because the only indicator of redemption is to actually turn against you know that dark cult you know that you have joined and unfortunately it's just you know in her case the indicators were weak you know and not enough you know to uh, satisfy that she was remorseful does that mean that she should be barred from coming i always said many times that you know there has to be a halfway station or a halfway safe house between where she is and the UK and her family in order for her to be rehabilitated. You know, I suggested even on national TV that, you know, the British base in Cyprus could be a, a location where she can be based or housed for a while. It is under UK jurisdiction, judicially speaking. And she can be then rehabilitated and, you know, and if satisfied, the security services can readmit her back to the UK. Um, and I'm saying this because, you know, with ISIS in particular, because they have a much more darker ideology than Al-Qaeda, and everyone can agree with this, actually, is that they have this tendency to fake repentance. And as soon as they are within a certain, you know, community, they are reactivated and then they do something. I mean... Uh, to the point where there were horrors, you know, and I met many Kurdish people who told me the stories of, you know, women from ISIS who would, you know, uh, raise the white flag in Mosul and uh, during the liberation of Mosul in Iraq, and they would say, like, you know, I, you know, I just want to surrender, I want to surrender, and then she will come carrying a child, carrying a baby, and also in her bag, in her handbag, carrying a bomb. And as soon as she is then surrounded by these Peshmerga forces, she sets off the bomb. She kills herself, her baby, and the other. So stories like this, which is well documented, by the way, is what makes the security services here extremely reluctant to just admit straight away. But because of legal impediments, it's also very difficult to create that halfway you know, space between here in the UK and where she is right now in order to 
you know, put her under observation for six months, a year, in order to you know, make sure that the rehabilitation is there. It's just because ISIS ideology is extremely poisonous and powerful. Very detailed answer. Do you have any? Well, we've got two, if you want to just in front of you here, just in front of the pillar, and then I'll come up to you up the back as well. Um, you use the term Londonistan, I think you said, and I've heard the term London grad as well for... London Abad, the, yeah. Yeah, and uh, London grad for all the Russian oligarchs. <laughs> um, is there something specific about London and the UK that makes that those situations and people come here and uh, discuss their ideologies more freely or more potently? Or is it something that happens in major cities across the, the world or Europe? Well, London wasn't the only thing, to be honest. Like, you know, I would say, like, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Paris is almost the same, you know, Cologne. Um, you know, uh, there are other, you know, um, Milan also. Like, you know, I mean, there were other European cities uh, that had uh, this problem. But I think... In particular, London, it's because of the fact that most of the um, ideologues of jihad, like Abu Qatada and Abu Hamza and Abu Walid al-Palestini and others, like, you know, I mean, chose it as, you know, their uh, place of refuge. So that is why, like, you know, I mean, London was, um, you know, the chosen place. Not to mention also the ease or because some of them, you know, were easy with the English language rather than, you know, for example, learning German or French. Um, so that's also one of the reasons why London was the chosen place for many of these people. And also the fact that the ease with which you can raise funds and the banking system here, which, you know, and the charitable laws, which basically, like, I mean, make it much easier in a way to, you know, uh, operate. Uh, up the back, yeah, just in front of you. Don't be put off, by the way, if I've not got to you. If you want to ask a question, I will come to you. Hi. Um, you've obviously been in some precarious predicaments. What are your techniques for holding your nerve? And do you lose that nerve the older you get? Well, just remember that the first mistake is the last mistake. So when you keep this in mind, uh, that, you know, really bring into sharp focus that if you screw up, that's it, you know. So you must always internalize, you know, your fear. And you must always make sure that, you know, the biggest enemy, you know, for you as a spy is, you know, false assumptions. False assumptions. You assume, oh, you've been summoned to see this guy. Oh, they know about me now. I'm going to be, you know. No, don't assume anything. Don't assume that anyone knows anything about you. So, for example, like, I mean, it happened to me before, and I mentioned the story several times, where, you know, I was, uh, you know, in one of the camps in Afghanistan, and I was on a cooking duty. And so, you know, everyone must do their duties, you know, from the top commander all the way down to the foot soldier. Everyone must do their, you know, civil duties within the camps. And so I was on a cooking duty. And then I remember I seen everyone around the kitchen leaving, and I, I wasn't, you know, knowing why. But then all I, I, I could remember is that someone... You know, uh, you know, fixed a pistol against my spine, you know, and said in a very menacing tone, we know who you are, we know who you're working for. That's it. We know you are a spy. You know, it's over. You have to come with me now. So it's only because of the training I was given that if anyone tells you this, this is a random shakedown. Because... 
unless if they tell you details that only you know, then they are really just full of BS. Um, and this is a random shakedown. So it's that training that really enabled me to turn around, you know, look that you know, uh, individual in the eye, straight in the eye, and tell him to lower his weapon and that I will not tolerate this sick joke. So, you know, when I really, like, I mean, was angry with him and showed him how much angry I was with him, this is when he lowered his gun and he said, sorry, I didn't mean it, like, I mean, it's, it's just, this is my duty. I was told, you know, that there would be a random shakedown. Your name came out because you are one of the travelers. So... Therefore, uh, you know, your name came, you know, as one of those who should be, you know, shaken down. I said, okay, you know, if that is the case, like, I mean, are you satisfied? Yes. And he left. By the time he left, and even though it was freezing cold, I was sweating buckets after that. Because, you know, even though, like, I mean, you know, yes, it, it, it was scary, but you have to understand your biggest enemy is assuming that someone else knows. No. No one else knows. And always remember this. No one else knows. You know. But the others don't. Any other questions? Anything you want to ask? Um, just in light of the recent attack on Salman Rushdie, do you ever fear for your own life now? And uh, has there ever been a fatwa on your head or is there an active fatwa now? See, before you answer this, can I point something out? Oh, yeah. When we came in, the first thing Eamon did was come over to the stage and look for where the nearest exits were, in case anything. <laughs> Genuine, genuine, I'm not even making that up. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, this is why there is a table here, like, you know, just in case someone jumps from the, like, you know, I mean, and just uh, push it against them, like, you know, I mean, so. Um, well, let me put it this way, like, you know, I mean, the... Yes, there was a fatwa on my head in 2008. Yes, you know, uh, you know, but the good news is that the five people who sat down there in a dark, you know, uh, cave in Waziristan, you know, on the Afghan-Pakistan border, who decided to hold that stupid fake tribunal and, you know, uh, sentence me, like, and I'm into this. Um, the good news is that, like, they're all dead. Um, hey. and, <laughs> um you know, uh, c c courtesy of the American Reapers, you know, from the sky. Um, but, you know, does it mean basically that, the, uh, you know, that the uh, fatwa expires, you know? Uh, well, those who issued it expired, but, you know, I don't know about the fatwa itself, but the reality is that there is every year, there is always a, um, an assessment, you know, made. And based on that, you know, some years are better than others. Um, definitely previous years were not good. Um, you know, at some point in 2016, like, I mean, there was an attempt on my life um, in uh, Arabia. But since tw late 2017, early 2018, things improved considerably to the point where, you know, finally there is no need to be, you know, living in almost semi-hiding, but, you know, to be able to live semi-open. Um, because of certain measures that were taken um, and because of the fact that, you know, I do not, you know, uh, you know treat my former associates with um, open hostilities um, and with contempt, but, um, you know, showing at least, like, you know, I mean, some kindness and some respect and some, you know, generosity sometimes.
Is that us? Oh, we've got one question down the front here. Hi, it's, uh, I don't have a question. I just wanted to thank you for sharing your story um, very honestly. And it's a very entertaining story, obviously, as well. But to finally, just to, as you are preparing to leave Scotland and leave the UK, um, wish you and your family all the happiness and love that you deserve. Thank you. Thank you. What about me? Do you think I was good, though? <laughs> Did you think I was good or just Emma? What are you laughing for? I'm not being serious. Um, I just to kind of round up, you know, I, I will echo the you know the same. Thank you for for being uh, for being so open for explaining these things. I think um, Scotland is a far richer place for having had you here. Your contribution, obviously, if you haven't heard it, I would go and listen back to the second last episode about why Eamon's leaving Scotland. Um, Everything is kind of expressed and laid out there, but yeah, I hope that um, even though you'll be far away, you maybe come back because I think I speak for myself. I think I speak for a lot of other people. You know, we'll always consider you one of our own. So don't be uh, don't be too slow in coming back. Indeed, I would thank say you. <laughs> thank you, by the way, as well for coming. Obviously, money's tight and all that, so I really appreciate you all coming out. If you enjoyed it, <laughs> feel free to tweet about it. If you didn't enjoy it, just fucking lie and say you did anyway. <laughs> um, but I suppose nothing else left to say other than can we have a massive round of applause for our remarkable guy thank you for more information on the Blethered podcast go to thebiglight.com forward slash blethered